This is Our American Stories, and on our show, we often like to ask writers to read what they've written. And by the way, not just big writers and famous writers and writers for the Washington Post or the big newspapers of this country or the big magazines, just ordinary folks who post something. It doesn't, well, you don't have to be a writer to be a writer. And this writer in particular was the international admissions director for Dartmouth College. It can be hard to know which students to admit to a place like Dartmouth. It's really competitive to get in. But one year there was a student that stood out above the rest. Here is Rebecca Sabke reading her article for us. Check this box if you're a good person. When I give college information sessions at high schools, I'm used to being swarmed by students. Usually, as soon as my lecture ends, they run up to me to hand me their resumes, fighting for my attention so that they could tell me about their internships or summer science programs. But last spring, after I spoke at a New Jersey public school, I ran into an entirely different kind of student. When the bell rang, I stuffed my leftover pamphlets into a bag and began to navigate the human tsunami that is a high school hallway at lunchtime. Just before I reached the parking lot, someone tapped me on the shoulder. Excuse me, ma'am, a student said, smiling through a set of braces. You dropped a granola bar on the floor of the cafeteria. I chased you down since I thought you'd want your snack. Before I could even thank him, he handed me the bar and dissolved into the sea of teenagers. Working in undergraduate admissions at Dartmouth College has introduced me to many talented young people. I used to be the director of international admissions and I'm now working part-time after having a baby. Every year, I'd read over 2,000 college applications from students all over the world. The applicants are always intellectually curious and talented. They climb mountains, had extracurricular clubs, and develop new technologies. They're the next generation's leaders. The problem is that in a deluge of promising candidates, many remarkable students become indistinguishable from one another, at least on paper. It is incredibly difficult to choose whom to admit. Yet, in the chaos of SAT scores, extracurriculars, and recommendations, one quality is always irresistible in a candidate. Kindness. It's a trait that would be hard to pinpoint on applications, even if colleges ask the right questions. Every so often, though, it can't help but shine through. The most surprising indication of kindness I've ever come across in my admissions career came from a student who went to a large public school in New England. He was clearly bright, as evidenced by his class rank and teacher's praise. He had a supportive recommendation from his college counselor and an impressive list of extracurricular. Even with these qualifications, he might not have stood out. But one letter of recommendation caught my eye. It was from a school custodian. Letters of recommendation are typically superfluous, written by people who the applicant thinks will impress a school. We regularly receive letters from former presidents, celebrities, trustee relatives, and Olympic athletes. But they generally fail to provide us with another angle on who the student is or could be as a member of our community. This letter was different. The custodian wrote that he was compelled to support the student's candidacy because of his thoughtfulness. This young man was the only person in the school who knew the names of every member of the janitorial staff. He turned off lights in empty rooms, consistently thanked the hallway monitor each morning, and tidied up after his peers, even if nobody was watching. This student, the custodian wrote, had a refreshing respect for every person at the school, regardless of position, popularity, or clout. Over 15 years and 30,000 applications in my admissions career, I had never seen a recommendation from a school custodian. It gave us a window onto a student's life in the moments when nothing counted. That student was admitted by unanimous vote of the admissions committee. There are so many talented applicants and precious few spots. We know how painful this must be for students. 
As someone who was rejected by the school where I ended up as a director of admissions, I know firsthand how devastating the words we regret to inform you can be. Until admissions committees figure out a way to effectively recognize the genuine but intangible personal qualities of applicants, we must rely on little things to make the difference. Sometimes an inappropriate email address is more telling than a personal essay. The way a student acts toward his parents on a campus tour can mean as much as a standardized test score. And, as I learned from that custodian, a sincere character evaluation from someone unexpected will mean more to us than any boilerplate recommendation from a former president or famous golfer. Next year, there might be a flood of custodian recommendations, thanks to this essay. But if it means students will start paying as much attention to the people who clean their classrooms as they do their principals and teachers, I'm happy to help start that trend. Colleges should foster the growth of individuals who show promise, not just in leadership and academics, but also in generosity of spirit. Since becoming a mom, I've also been looking at applications differently. I can't help anticipating my son's own dive into the college admissions frenzy 17 years from now. Whether or not he even decides to go to college when the time is right, I want him to resemble a person thoughtful enough to return a granola bar and gracious enough to respect every member in his community. And thank you, Rebecca, for sharing that. And my goodness, I would have let the student in too. And by the way, we're going to be covering a story uh, that came out of the New York Times recently, and it had to do with Harvard. This is one of the first years that they've decided to not let people in because of Facebook posts. So as you're talking to your kids, know that they're now looking at Facebook posts, how you conduct yourself, what you say, stupid stuff you do, lewd stuff, inappropriate stuff you do, and thank goodness, I wish, I wish we'd all get on this. It's a big problem in the country. And uh, good for Harvard uh, for doing that. And thank you again uh, for sharing that story with us, Rebecca Sapke uh, at Dartmouth College. And we also love to hear from you, uh, the members of our audience. And you're about to hear a story from one of our listeners in Chicago, Clay Stroop. I was in the waiting room at the doctor just for a routine checkup and next to me was an elderly woman with her daughter the older woman evidently had some form of dementia and her daughter was showing pictures and explaining with great patience that the two little girls in the photos are her great-granddaughters after some explaining and finally understanding the elderly woman proclaimed you mean I'm a great-grandmother that's wonderful Judging by the look on the daughter's face, it was probably the 100th time she's explained it, but she still treated it like the first. I tell you, it took all I could to keep from getting up and hugging everyone and keeping it all together. Love is so powerful. And it is, and we can always take those kind of short messages from you. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org. And thank you, Clay, for sharing that. And again, thank you, Rebecca Sabke of Dartmouth College. This is Our American Stories. More after these messages.
This is Our American Stories. We're about to tell the story about the film It's a Wonderful Life. What is it about that movie that makes it so alluring? On the most basic level, it reminds us all that every person matters, that we can depend on the strength of family and friends, and that God hears our desperate cries. Here's Greg Hangler with the story of this Christmas classic, It's a Wonderful Life. In the closing scene of It's a Wonderful Life, newly commissioned first-class guardian angel Clarence Oddbody reminds George Bailey, no man is a failure who has friends. For countless families, including my own, George Bailey and the cast of It's a Wonderful Life have long been treasured holiday friends, reminding us of the power of friendship and the potential impact and worth of a single human life. It's a Wonderful Life is an illustration of the values and virtues we see illustrated in the Christmas story. Self-sacrifice, provision, faith, generosity, mercy, grace, joy, divine intervention, the meaning of life, and forgiveness. Like the joy of carefully opening a skillfully wrapped Christmas present, we are about to remove the wrapper from this film, discovering some of the precious anecdotes in virtually every scene. It's Christmas Eve. A desperate man certain that his entire life has been worth nothing stands on the brink of suicide. But God has better things in store for George Bailey. Dear Father in heaven, I'm not a praying man, but if you're up there and you can hear me, show me the way. I'm at the end of my rope, right? Surprisingly, It's a Wonderful Life began as a Christmas card. In 1943, writer Philip Van Doren Stern wrote a short story he called The Greatest Gift. When Stern couldn't sell his story, he had 200 copies printed and enclosed them in his Christmas cards. Three months later, RKO Radio Studios bought The Greatest Gift for $10,000 intending to make a Christmas movie with Cary Grant. Three different scripts were commissioned for The Greatest Gift by noted writers Mark Connolly, Dalton Trumbo, and Clifford Odets. But none of them made the grade. So The Greatest Gift gathered dust on the shelf at RKO. That is until director Frank Capra discovered it. Capra read The Greatest Gift and saw its potential immediately. RKO, anxious to unload the troublesome project, sold The Greatest Gift to Capra for the same $10,000 they'd paid for it and threw in all three scripts for free. Frank Russell Capra was one of the most successful directors of the 1930s with classics, such as It Happened One Night, You Can't Take It With You, and Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. During World War II, Capra served in the U.S. Army Signal Corps and produced propaganda films such as the Why We Fight series. Born in Italy and raised in Los Angeles from the age of five, His rags-to-riches story has led film historians such as Ian Freer to consider him the American dream personified. Capra was very popular with audiences, but critics often mocked his optimistic, wholesome, sentimental, and uplifting films, calling them Capricorn, qualities that were rare even in the heydays of the 1930s and 40s. 
Capper didn't mind, though. He thought that making positive statements through his movies was very important. It's a Wonderful Life is a sentimental film, but it's also an honest one. It explores the pain of normal life as well as the joy. Here's Frank Capra. That's a great film. I love that film. It's my favorite film. And in a sense, it epitomizes everything I've been trying to do and trying to say in the other films. Only does it very dramatically with a, with a very unique story. The importance of the individual is the theme that, I'm, that it, it, it tells. And uh, that no man is a failure. And every man has a, something to do with his life. If he's born, he's born to do something. I suppose it'd been better if I'd never been born at all. What'd you say? I said I wish I'd never been born. Wait a minute, that's an idea. What do you think? And this idea is carried out in this unique plot because a man who thought he was a failure and thought he'd be, everybody around him would have been better off had he not been born was given the chance to see how the world around him would have been, his own small little world would have been had he not been born. Your brother, Harry Bailey, broke through the ice and was drowned at the age of nine. That's a lie. Harry Bailey went to war. He got the Congressional Medal of Honor. He saved the lives of every man on that transport. Every man on that transport died. Harry wasn't there to save them because you weren't there to save Harry. You see, George, you really had a wonderful life. Don't you see what a mistake it would be to throw it away? Although many of the film's roles would prove difficult to cast, Capra had only one George Bailey in mind, Jimmy Stewart, who had already starred in Capra's You Can't Take It With You in 1938 and Mr. Smith Goes to Washington in 1939. Stewart, who became the first movie star to wear a military uniform, had just returned from the Second World War as a combat bomber pilot and was one of the few Americans to ever rise from private to colonel in only four years. Like most returning GIs, Stewart wondered what would happen next. My contract with MGM ran out during the war, and I just got a phone call one day. It was Frank Capra, and he said, I have an idea for a story. Why don't you come down, and, and I'll, uh, I'll tell, tell it to you. Well, I couldn't get down there quick enough, and I sat down. And he said, you're a uh, fellow in a small town. Mary, I know what I'm going to do tomorrow and the next day and next year and the year after that. I'm shaking the dust of this crummy little town off my feet and I'm going to see the world. Yeah, then you get married, you have all these kids. Hello, Daddy. Hello, Daddy. And your father dies and you have to take over the building Four, alone. Three, two, one, bingo! <laughs> We're still in business. We've still got two bucks left. And uh, finally, you're going to kill yourself. You're going to jump off a bridge. And an angel by the name of Clarence, he comes down to help you, but uh, he can't swim. Help! Well, you go down and uh, save the... He said, this, this really doesn't sound very good, does it? I said, Frank, if you, want, if you want me to be in a picture about a guy that wants to kill himself and an angel comes down, I'm Clarence, and he can't swim, and I saved. I, I, when do we start? As a screen actor, they don't come much more likable than Jimmy Stewart. His characters on screen are honest, direct, and friendly. But Frank Capra saw a darker personality beneath Stewart's all-American charm. He knew that Stewart could not only own
own the lighter moments in the film, but that he could also be convincing as a man sinking into bitterness and despair. Here's Hollywood legend Carol Burnett. I think it's uh, one of the finest pieces of work of acting anyone has ever done on the screen. That moment at that bar, uh, it's indelible in my mind. He realizes that he has lost everything. The money is missing. It's Christmas Eve, and he sits there and starts to cry. He is so in tune with that character and with that writing that uh, he and George Bailey are one. Capra's genius in casting can be seen in how he populated Bedford Falls with the finest bunch of character actors in Hollywood. The role of George's Uncle Billy was considered for W.C. Fields, but was given to the first man to win an Oscar, an Emmy, and a Tony Award, Thomas Mitchell. Oh, maybe I better go home. Where's my hat? Where's my hat? Oh, oh thank you, George. This is mine. The metal one. Oh. For the evil Mr. Potter, Capper considered the master of chills, Vincent Price, but was inevitably played to nasty perfection by Lionel Barrymore, Drew Barrymore's great-uncle. George, I am an old man. Most people hate me, but I don't like them either, so that makes it all even. For George Bailey's wife, Mary, Capra's instincts were accurate once again when he cast the relatively unknown MGM contract player, Donna Reed, the perfect mixture of wholesome sex appeal and homegrown American strength and virtue. What'd you wish, George? And what storytelling this is. When we come back, I know you're going to want to hear the rest of this story of the making of It's a Wonderful Life from some of the original people on the scene when it was made here on Our American Story. Turn to the story of the making of It's a Wonderful Life. And when we last left off, director Frank Capra was casting a young farm girl from Iowa named Donna Reed. What'd you wish, George? Well, not just one wish, a whole hat full. Here's an interesting bit of trivia. Frank Capra had hired someone to toss a rock at the window for Donna Reed in the old house scene. But as it turned out, she was a terrific baseball pitcher. Reed surprised Capra and the production crew with the power and accuracy of her toss, throwing the rock better than anyone else on the set. I'm going to build bridges a mile long. Well, you going to throw a rock? Hey, that's pretty good. What'd you wish, Mary? Donna Reed's sweetness and beauty make it obvious to us, if not to George, that staying in Bedford Falls is not a punishment but a pleasure. 
Welcome home, Mr. Bailey. If George was to have a wonderful life, to a great extent, it was his wife who made it so. Remember the night we broke through windows in this old house? This is what I wished for. These days, movies can say and show almost anything imaginable. But in 1946, the Motion Picture Association of America's production code eliminated the words impotent, dang, lousy, and jerk from Capra's script. In one case, Capra managed to sidestep the production code that stipulated that criminals had to be punished for their crimes. But when Mr. Potter steals Uncle Billy's misplaced building and loan $8,000 deposit, he never receives his penalty. Capra said that he received more mail about this point over the years than about anything else in the film. All right, George, go ahead. Go ahead. You can't hide in a little town like this. <laughs> the little town of Bedford Falls was in fact a set built on the RKO Ranch in Encino, California a city that never sees snow, not even in the coldest days of winter, let alone during the record-breaking heatwave summer of filming in 1946. At the time, movie snow was usually made of cornflakes painted white, but the large crunch made it impossible to record dialogue. The special effects crew invented a new type of artificial snow using a wind machine and a special mixture of 6,000 gallons of fomite, sugar, soap, and water. One of the funniest scenes in the movie takes place at a high school gymnasium when a Charleston contest is suddenly interrupted when the floor of the gym slides open, revealing a swimming pool beneath it. I've got the key. Many critics jeered at this scene, calling it movie fakery at its worst. But it's real, and what is called the swim gym is in daily use to this very day at Beverly Hills High School. And if the jealous prankster who opens the gym floor over George Bailey looks familiar, it's because it's none other than Carl Schweitzer, otherwise known as Alfalfa from Our Gang or The Little Rascals. Frank Capra loved to take advantage of surprises on the set, during the scene where Uncle Billy has too much to drink and says goodbye to George, a technician off-screen accidentally knocked over a stack of props. It sounded like Uncle Billy had fallen into a whole stack of garbage cans. The production guy expected to be fired, but Capra gave him a $10 bonus for improving sound and characterization. Thank you, George. Oh, boy, oh, boy. Now, look. If you'll point me in the right direction, would you do that, George? Right down. Old, old building and lone pal. Huh? Now, you just turn this way. On that right straight down there. Oh, that way. My wild Irish road. I'm all right. I'm all right. Oh, sweetest flower. In another sequence... Capra faced an unexpected snag when Jimmy Stewart became extremely reluctant to kiss Donna Reed in the now-famous telephone scene. He kept asking Capra to delay the scene, arguing that he had been away from the cameras too long for such a hot and heavy scene. A fella gets rusty, he said. 
Capper insisted they shoot the scene. And just to make sure Stewart didn't back out, he restaged it so that Jimmy Stewart and Reed had to share the phone. The scene was shot in one take and is arguably the greatest kiss in movie-making history. George, George, George. Everyone has a favorite part in It's a Wonderful Life, including Jimmy Stewart himself. Here he is on a walk and talk with Johnny Carson. Of all the great scenes in that picture, what was your favorite? Well, I think it was the scene with the angel Clarence. Yeah. When we were in that uh, little house, but when we'd just been in the water. The bridge tender. Yeah. 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 And uh, Clarence told me that he was an angel that uh, hadn't won his wings yet. I, I love that. Hey, what's, what's with you? What did what, what, you say just a minute ago? Why'd you want to save me? That's what I was sent down for. I'm your guardian angel. I wouldn't be a bit surprised. Ridiculous of you to think of killing yourself for money. Eight thousand dollars. Yeah, now, th- just things like that. How do you know that? I told you I'm your guardian angel. I know everything about you. Well, you look about like the kind of an angel I'd get. Sort of a fallen angel, aren't you? What happened to your wings? I haven't worn my wings yet. That's why I'm an angel second class. Uh, I don't know whether I like it very much being seen around with an angel without any wing. This is one of the wonderful things about the picture, I think. The scene at the end of the picture, uh, this is after that's... It's a different place. Nobody knows me and everything. But I just, uh, I stop for a minute and I say, God, I'm not a praying man, but please bring me back. Please bring me back. I want to live again. I want to live again. Please, God, let me live again. The film premiered in New York's Globe Theater on West 46th Street on December 20th, 1946 and failed to crack the top 25 grossing films for 1947. It was nominated for five Academy Awards, but didn't win a single gold statue. Within a few months, It's a Wonderful Life was out of sight and out of mind, where it would inevitably retire into obscurity. But future audiences would rediscover the film thanks to a legal loophole. In the early 1970s, copyright on the film expired and the movie company failed to renew it. Therefore, the film entered into the public domain. Television networks could play It's a Wonderful Life as often as they wanted without paying any royalties. Word of mouth began to spread, and more and more people began to fall in love with the picture. Bert, do you know me? It came from just little bits of thinking. Just, Just remember... No man is born to be a failure. Just remember, no man is poor who has friends. It shows values that are really very close to an awful lot of us and are really very basic American values. Like George Bailey, we might wonder what the world might have been like without It's a Wonderful Life. But like George Bailey, the film was rescued from oblivion by its friends making It's a Wonderful Life one of the greatest films of all time. Fellow Americans who love all the optimistic, wholesome, 
sentimental and uplifting ingredients in Capricorn. It is a wonderful life. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And great job, as always. And go to Our American Network to hear all of our art stories and all of our movie stories. Frank Capra's story, It's a Wonderful Life story, here on Our American Stories. we continue here on Our American Stories. Dawn Raffle was a fiction editor for many years. She helped launch O, the Oprah magazine, where she served as executive articles editor for seven years. She subsequently held a senior level at large position at Reader's Digest. Raffle's most recent book, The Strange Case of Dr. Cooney, How a Mysterious European Showman Saved Thousands of American Babies, was awarded a 2019 Christopher Award for books that affirm the highest values of the human spirit. Let's take a listen to this wonderfully unique American story. Hello, my name is Dawn Raffle. I'm the author of the book, The Strange Case of Dr. Cooney, How a Mysterious European Showman Saved Thousands of American Babies. I spent about four years going down a rabbit hole of research to find out what was the deal with one of the strangest stories in American medical history. So early in the 20th century, um, if you were to go to Coney Island, um, the People's Playground, also known affectionately as Sodom by the Sea for its hijinks, or if you were to go to Atlantic City, which at the time was America's honeymoon capital, or if you were to go to, say, a theme park in Chicago or Minneapolis, you would pass an exhibit that would say, infant incubators with real living babies. And there would be a barker outside, and you could pay a quarter to go see living premature babies being cared for in incubators. So when I first stumbled across this, I thought, how is this even possible? Is this the most crazy exploitation of human life? Is this a commodification of babies? Well, it turned out to be even stranger than that. There was almost no care for premature babies available in American hospitals at that time. So if somebody had a baby and a tiny one, two or three pounds, their best hope was to take the baby home and maybe um, wrap it in blankets, keep it warm next to the oven or the fire, and hope for the best, and often the best was not very good. Along came This man, Dr. Martin Arthur Cooney, who was behind all of these sideshows. Who was he? He claimed that he was a European doctor, that he had 
train in Leipzig in Berlin. That, that would have been some of the best medical training in the world at that time. And then he was the protege of a great French doctor who was conveniently dead at the time that Martin Cooney was making these claims. And that he then came to the United States for the very first time in 1898 for the Omaha World's Fair to show this new technology, the infant incubator. Now, his story becomes very odd because apparently, according to him, he was just seized with the desire to relocate across an ocean. Seriously, why? Once you've seen Omaha, you can never return to Paris? I think I will give up my really prestigious institutional affiliation with one of the world's great doctors in France so that I can practice medicine on Coney Island next to the shoot the shoots and the alligator boy. Okay, it's not too much of a spoiler to say Martin Cooney really wasn't a real doctor. However, he knew how to save preemies and he was willing to do it when the medical establishment really couldn't and wouldn't do it. So here's this guy who actually did pick up a European protocol. He hired fantastic nurses, and let me tell you, in a neonatal ICU, the nurses are always the secret sauce. That has a lot to do with whether or not the babies survive. He had these great machines, the new incubators. He also offered the most meticulous care, very low nurse-to-patient ratio, insistent on feeding these babies breast milk only. If the mother couldn't provide it, he hired wet nurses. The premises were immaculate. He was a big believer in really loving these babies. Love them, hug them, show them real human care. This was very much at odds with anything that was available in the hospitals for a long time. At the time, the hospitals really didn't have the resources to have enough equipment. They didn't have enough nurses. They didn't have enough space. Hospitals were sometimes not all that clean. They couldn't afford to hire wet nurses. They would feed the baby's formula that was not as successful. So here is this Dr. Cooney, fake doctor, saving children over the years by the thousands, desperately trying to persuade the medical establishment. And yes, admittedly, because this guy was charging admission to the public, he was becoming very wealthy himself. I don't really think he saw a conflict between doing good and his own personal self-interest. There were people who faulted him for that. But he continued, and you would think the medical establishment would catch on and say, hey, you know, here's this guy, he's getting real results. He's saving 85% of these children who should be considered pretty much doomed. However, there were a few things going on, one of which, unfortunately, was the American eugenics movement, which was really about taking the new science of genetics and using it to try to manipulate the human gene stock. It ended up in absolutely horrific abuses, including the involuntary sterilization of tens of thousands of Americans and the decision to sometimes deliberately withhold care from infants who had severe disabilities. Um, and it didn't directly 
target premature babies, but it did cast a shadow over their prospects. There was really a sense of, you know, why do we need to care for these weaklings, these feeble babies? We have more than enough hungry mouths to feed. The mother will have another child and so on. So the resources were just lacking. Over time, Martin Cooney had one great friend in Chicago, Dr. Julius Hess. And Julius Hess was really everything Martin Cooney wasn't. He was a real doctor. He did have real credentials. He was very highly respected. And he began listening to Dr. Cooney, learning from him, taking his practices into the hospital setting, and desperately, desperately struggling for funding, struggling to get people to listen to him. He published the first book on taking care of preemies in this country in 1922, in which he dedicated his book to Dr. Cooney. But something that really turned the tide was in 1933, at the bottom of the Depression, there was a World's Fair in Chicago. It's not the famous World's Fair that most people think of with the Ferris wheel and that's featured in the book Devil in the White City. This was a Depression era World's Fair and Dr. Cooney and Dr. Hess joined forces to have a big incubator show. It was right out on the Midway with the sideshows and other Midway attractions. Meanwhile, in the Hall of Science, you had a eugenics exhibit, but the actual work of saving lives was happening on the Midway, and there was so much publicity for this particular show that it did begin to turn the tide. Chicago became the first city with a really unified public health policy in order to take care of preemies. It would eventually become the model for the rest of the country. So if we really want to look at it, there are many people beginning to believe that, yes, you know, this phony doctor with the sideshow is actually the rightful father of American neonatology. He saved thousands and thousands of people. Some of them are still alive. I've talked to a bunch of them. I will tell you, not a one of them feels annoyed that they were displayed in a sideshow. Not a one of them feels like they were exploited in any way. And not a one of them is irritated that he wasn't a real doctor. They feel only gratitude that this man saved their life. And they went on to have wonderful lives and have children and have grandchildren. Without Martin Cooney, they probably would not be here. So we sometimes owe a debt to people who work really far outside the lines, and Martin Cooney is one of them. Another really interesting thing about Dr. Cooney is that when hospitals began introducing incubators, and it, it really became very widespread after World War II when American healthcare in general just got better and better, that first generation of preemies treated in hospitals with incubators, a great many of them very sadly went blind, and they couldn't understand what was going on. And Martin Cooney, by that point, was already retired, but they did go to ask him, why is it that none of the babies you treated lost their eyesight? And frankly, he really didn't know. Um, well, he wasn't a doctor, and nobody knew why this was going on. The truth was the hospitals were pumping too much oxygen into the machines. That was causing the blindness. And Martin Cooney, although he pumped oxygen into the machines, it was never as much. And hey, he was a showman. So he would actually take the babies out of the machines and show them off. And because of that, 
Because of that, their eyesight was preserved. So again, just a little piece of lost medical history, and I hope you enjoy the story. Thank you. And that was Dawn Raffle, and thanks, Dawn, for that really interesting story. And so much work is done outside the boundaries of whatever the establishment thinks in almost any field. And lives were saved. It was interesting that she got to talk to and meet some of these preemies who became, well, parents themselves. And not one of them was upset or were felt exploited. And not one of them cared that he wasn't a real doctor. Because, well, he saved their lives. The strange story of Dr. Cooney, here on Our American Stories. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. Today, we have one of our regular features brought to us by Stephen Rosiniak. This time, his nephew Paul is reading his story for us. The story is entitled, God Bless You Too. There was a boring regularity to life on the floors. The residents of this nursing home didn't expect nor welcome change, but at Christmas time, everything did change. In one year, something happened that two teenagers will never forget. Christmas was just days away. Decorations abound and a steady stream of holiday tunes quietly playing in the background only added to the joyful atmosphere. Staff members hummed while performing their duties, and the residents, well, they were drawn into the excitement. A surprise visitor was about to make this day even better. The residents love children. Their visits, especially around the holidays, proved magical. Suddenly, even the grouchiest senior became agreeable. Kids brought out the very best in everyone on the floors. On this afternoon, a children's choir was scheduled to perform, and they had promised to bring with them a special guest. Who could it be, they wondered. By early afternoon, everybody knew the answer. Santa Claus was coming to town. And so they waited, and they became children again. A giddy sense of excitement filled these old kids as they began asking the important questions. What will they sing? Is Santa really coming? And most important of all, do you think he'll bring cookies? Later that afternoon, and as promised, a children's choir burst forth into the day room singing a spirited rendition of Jingle Bells. For the next hour, audience members were treated to so many of their favorite carols, and when the final words to We Wish You a Merry Christmas were being sung, a thunderous ho, ho, ho reverberated throughout the room. A well-padded and very youthful-looking Santa Claus arrived, and he had a large tray of assorted holiday cookies. The choir joined Santa as he mingled with his audience, stopping often to give and receive hugs. When it was time to feed his reindeer, a nurse asked if he'd visit with the bedridden patients. Of course, he said, and he did just that. Margaret was confined to her hospital bed, and yet, on this day, she was just another excited little girl awaiting Santa. She heard the choir outside her room, but was thrilled when a booming, 
Ho, 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 echoed from her doorway. With failing eyes, she saw his silhouette. Santa, she whispered. Approaching her bedside, and in his pretend Santa voice, he called out, Merry Christmas, Margaret, adding, And what do you want for Christmas, little girl? Several members of Santa's holiday entourage smiled because they knew Margaret's nurse had already asked this same question, and they already knew her answer. With a twinkle in her eyes, she quietly said, I want a kiss from you, Santa. Laughter filled the room, and all eyes were quickly upon him, curious to see his reaction. The laughing stopped when Santa gently took Margaret's hand in his own, bent down, and kissed her. Merry Christmas, he said. Softer now, but still in his pretend voice. Merry Christmas, Santa, she replied. A smile appeared upon her wrinkled face as tears welled up in her tired old eyes. Santa lingered for another moment, and then, while still holding her hand, he quietly said, now in his own voice, God bless you, Margaret. God bless you too, Santa, she whispered back. The sounds of muffled sobs suddenly filled the room. Fortunately, the nurse reminded Santa that he had other patients to visit, and so he moved on. Little did he know, it was time for someone else to be moving on also. Santa's group visited every bedridden patient, and afterwards, he decided on one last stop. He asked his nurse escort if he could say goodbye to Margaret. Struggling to find the right words, she told him that Margaret had died soon after he had left her room. She said that in her final moments, Margaret spoke of being blessed by Santa, and of course, that he had kissed her. The nurse reassured him that when the end came, Margaret was content and that he was the reason why. Santa thanked the nurse for telling him and then quickly left the floor. Nobody would want to see Santa Claus cry. I worked at this nursing home where the elderly lived and in the end they died. I'll never forget Santa's visit. He rarely set foot on the floors. Instead, he remained downstairs working as a part-time dishwasher. He made a pretty good Santa Claus though. We were both still kids on that afternoon all those years ago. Since then, my brother Paul and I have come a long way. And thanks to Stephen Rosiniak for that beautiful story. And we can picture in our heads uh, that scene, that final scene. And also, imagine hearing that news uh, that you'd put a smile on someone's face just before they died. And what a beautiful thing to do. Probably the most formidable thing that happened in my life in high school well, actually, by far the most formidable thing that happened was dating a girl who worked at a nursing home. And, of course, because she was there, I was there. And I just got to know these folks, these, these, these older people who many of them didn't have family visit, uh, didn't have family left. Everybody had died. Uh, and just being with them and, and spending time with them uh, and then watching them pass after having developed relationships with them, uh, it, it made me different than the other kids. Stephen Rosiniak's story, Margaret's story, and for so many caregivers across this country, their stories too, here on Our American Stories. And now it's time for the Why Minutes with Lindsay Marie. The Why Minutes, because why matters. If today were your last, what would you do? Tucson resident Chris Lamb wanted to spend the rest of his days making people smile. He had three brain tumors, was partially blind, and slightly paralyzed on his right side. But that didn't stop him from getting up early five days a week, heading to a busy intersection, and smiling and waving at everyone as they passed. Rain, sleet, snow, or shine. When Chris was asked why he did it, he answered, I just wanted to make a difference. And what a difference he made. 
commuters routinely stopped to chat with him, including one man who was having a particularly bad day. Chris recalled, they end up laughing their butts off for over five minutes. One woman even called Chris her guardian angel. She said that seeing him out there made her feel good because she knew he was doing it to make others feel better. But the smile campaign wasn't just making others feel better. According to Chris's wife, it kept him alive. After being diagnosed with cancer, he decided to shake up his routine trip to the convenience store. He started smiling at everyone he passed. And something interesting happened. Everyone smiled back. Thus, the smile campaign was born. He was told he only had a few years left to live, but that was over 10 years ago. If today isn't your last day, try shaking up your routine. Smile at everyone you pass, because you never know whose life you could be changing, including your own. The Why Minutes, because why matters. And we continue here with our American stories, and we tell stories from all over this great country, from big cities to small towns, from rural America to urban America. It's all good to us. And we now bring you the story of Missouri native Bill High. I grew up in the Kansas City area, but I always like to tell people that my story begins a lot earlier because my dad was the oldest of eight and he grew up in a three-room log cabin in the hills of the Missouri Ozarks. And the Missouri Ozarks, if anybody ever saw the movie Deliverance, they'd understand, the old Burt Reynolds movie, they'd understand what the Ozarks are like. It's very backwards, it's very hillbilly, and so you can do the math, eight kids, three-room log cabin, life was pretty difficult, life was hard, and my grandfather is not a guy that I knew. His name was Clifford. Uh, to be honest, he was not a nice guy by any means. Alcoholism ran in the family, and that's the environment that my dad grew up in. So, you know, those were the days where you got started smoking and drinking early, and so he began that practice and uh, had six kids. I was the fifth out of those six. It was very rough, very difficult years growing up. My dad continued the alcohol, he continued smoking, and we were a pretty dysfunctional family background. We were on welfare. I remember going to the welfare office and picking up cans and all the canned goods, the canned peanut butter, uh, dehydrated milk, and that's kind of the way we grew up. The first house that I remember growing up in didn't have a working toilet, only had an outhouse. Uh, we did have some water that ran to the house, but it was well water. And so in the winter times, it was kind of a mad dash to, to go to the outhouse and come back before you froze your buns off. So that, that was the environment that we grew up in. It was just kind of a rough life. But kind of the big day that changed all of our lives, I was in first grade and our house burnt down and there were flames coming from the attic. We knew the house was on fire so for a minute my dad and my brothers were trying to throw buckets of water on it and ultimately uh, they had to call the fire department and try to put out 
the fire. It didn't work, but that same night that the fire occurred, my older brother was actually out running in the backyard and he ended up cutting his eye or right above his eyebrow. He, he ran into a barbed wire fence, had to be taken to the hospital, and that was kind of icing on the cake for my dad. My dad said that he felt like his luck had changed, so that was in um, 1969 when that occurred. From that point on, I really remember that his alcoholism really grew worse and our family became even more divided and it seemed like that we were on a downhill slide. We ended up moving, found a house in this little town of Waldron, Missouri, 100 people down by the Missouri River. The, the town that we lived in, you know, I mean, it's a dead-end town, just like the Ozarks were for, for my dad. But there in Waldron, Missouri, the big turning point is, I sometimes say that the house fire was the best day and the worst day of my life because what happened is after the house fire, when we moved into that town, there was a, a family down the street who had become Christians through a church plant in Waldron, Missouri. So if you can imagine that, I don't know why anybody in the world would want to plant a church in a town of 100 people. It's actually probably 99 people, not 100. But they planted that church, and our neighbor down the street they were some of the first converts and so they took pity upon our little family and how poor we were again the house that we lived in didn't have a working toilet and I'm sure we looked like uh, peasants but they brought our family a children's Bible story book and so I began to read that children's Bible story book and so for the first time in my life I discovered that there was a God and that I was not. I read the stories of David and Goliath, of Moses crossing the Red Sea, of Joshua fighting the battle of Jericho, of the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah and all the kings Solomon and King David and, and on and on and ultimately came to the climax of the story with Jesus going to the cross and giving his life and ultimately through that children's Bible story book is how God began to draw me to himself through the story of the Bible. And so while the house fire led to us uh, having moved, it also became the beginning of God drawing me to himself. So the best day and the worst day of my life all in one. And it turned out that after we moved, it was just a couple years later that my dad actually passed away. December 18th of 1974, so a week before Christmas that he died, I was in school. I was in the sixth grade. My younger sister was there. We got called out of our classrooms and said, hey, you, need, you guys need to come out. You need to go home today. Nobody would tell us what had gone on, but I knew at 12 years old what the news was. He died of lung cancer, and uh, it was a, a difficult period where we came home and realized that our dad was gone. You know, when I got home, we were cleaning the house, and I was kind of annoyed. I was mad because I'm like, how fitting, how appropriate that someone dies and your response is to clean the house. Now, we, you know, we, had, we were going to have family come over and the like. So, and again, this was a little nothing house. We lived by the railroad tracks, and our house shook all the time. But it, it was just one of those things that kind of made me angry that nobody would talk to me about this. Uh, we talked around it, but, you know, 
you know, we that we grew up in such a backwards way that this wasn't a place where people would provide emotional comfort. So my job was to take out the trash and burn it. I still lived in a place where you could burn trash back in those days. And I just cried bitterly. I was like, God, how could you take my father? And so that was one of those moments where I was like, wow, this is incredible, Lord, that you would do this. So while I knew God, I was still angry. And so for the first number of years, part of the, the difficult parts of those moments was the fact that Wherever I went, it was kind of like I'd look around and I would see these other guys in school and going to school on the bus and, you know, their dads were dropping them off at school or the bus stop. And part of my reaction was, you, you really don't know what you have until you lose it. And even though he wasn't the greatest guy by any means, he was still my dad and uh, it was raw. Um, it was, it's like the, uh, you know, sc scraping the, your fingernails across the chalkboard, and I didn't know how to deal with it. And after he died, God entered the scene and gave our family peace. And I hate to say it that way because, it's, again, it's not like he was the most miserable man there ever was. But God gave us peace, and part of that was be him beginning to say, I can provide for you. And our lives got better. And Social Security, survivor's benefits, while it wasn't much, man, you know, wealth is never defined by how much money you have in the bank account. Wealth is, should always be defined by the amount of capital that you have in terms of your social relationships, the spiritual relationships that you have. And our family bank account began to grow in so many other ways uh, other than money. And so that's why I say we just became extremely grateful for those years. My mom, by the way, is 91 now, and she lives with us. And I just consider it a great privilege that after all the things that she had to endure on our behalf, that she is able to live with us and we can provide for her and give her some measure of comfort and peace that she didn't get to know as a married woman. I mean, at the time my dad died, he was 44 and she was 46. She never remarried and she has been a faithful servant to her family over all these years. But, you know, here, here my wife is, and we have, it's her mother-in-law, and she's living with us. She's the one that takes her to the doctor appointments and all that kind of stuff. And she, I mean, even my mom, who's really, frankly, a, a tough old woman, I mean, given what all that she's had to incur, she says that. She says, my wife is kind and gentle. So uh, that is a great testimony back about my wife. And when we come back, we'll continue the story of Bill High. The house fire was the best day and the worst day of my life. And after Dad died, God entered the scene and gave us peace. And by the way, why the hell would you want to plant a church in a town of 100 people? Bill High's story is why. And when we come back, more of Bill High's story here on Our American Story.
And we're back with our American stories and Bill High's story of growing up in a dysfunctional environment and losing his dad at the age of 12. He wasn't the greatest guy, Bill said, but he was my dad. And yet meeting Christ changed Bill's life. And this great country has empowered him to change his circumstances. At Bill's foundation, The Signatory, he's helped generous families give over $2 billion to ministries around the world. Let's return to Bill. I wouldn't have realized it um, until much, much later, but that whole experience of losing my dad and growing up the way I did really gave me a great passion for family. So I always wanted to be a father. I'm 56 now. I have four kids. Two of them are married. I have three grandchildren. And the thing that strikes at me the most is this idea that my kids and now my grandkids might be successful for generations. So I look, um, I try to beat against the notion, you know, people say, hey, you got grandkids. And then they'll ask you, do they live close? And I'll say, well, yeah, they do. And then they go, oh, don't you think grandkids are so great? And I say, yes, I do. And they said, because you can give them back. And I try to say, no, that's not it. Yeah, grandkids are great, but the real value to me is that I can invest in them and hopefully be part of passing on this same set of values that my daughter and, and, and my son-in-law are trying to pass on. So if I can reinforce what they're doing and do that for generations, and I can have an impact on kids that I'll never see, that's one of the first ways that we impact culture in a profound way. That's the powerful idea of living in community. So that's my first big thing that I'm really committed to with whatever days and whatever breath I have left. I'm afraid that what's happened is we've let culture define family, and over time we've gotten to this place. 1962, uh, Del Webb was voted as the Man of the Year, and uh, Time Magazine Man of the Year. And the reason why he was voted the Man of the Year is because he came up with the concept of retirement communities. And the whole idea was, man, you've worked hard all of your life, and now you get to retire and kick back, and this is for you, and you get to go play golf. And so I say that we've risen to the place where we describe family as the up and out theory. You raise them up and you kick them out and you go play golf. And that's really not the idea of family. Family has really been the idea that family is meant to be multi-generational. But when you and your wife set out to have kids, you didn't set out to say, man, I'm going to have those kids and I can't wait till they get out of the house. And, And of course, my intent is to screw them up. You know, I mean, you you don't want to raise drug addicts. You didn't want to raise kids who are contrary to your values. And you didn't just see this as, you know, a beginning and an end. And, you know, I'm going to play with them and have fun with them. But, man, they got to make it on their own. Nobody has that intent, but I'm afraid that's where we've landed in society is we've landed in this place where kids are kind of fun and convenient. We'll go to their baseball games. You know, we hope they get into good colleges. Uh, We could probably go into little stories aside about that one as well. Uh, We won't go there. But the bottom line is that, you know, kind of once we get done with that, we're like, okay, now it's me time. The reality is, is that what we all hope intuitively is that your kids would carry on with a majority of the values that you and your wife hold. And you would hope that you would live long enough that you would see those grandkids who carry on with that same set of values. And then dream it 
that your great grandkids, maybe you get to see them, but maybe your greats carry on with that same set of values too. And that's one of the first places that we change culture. Family's the first institution to preserve values to impact culture for generations. It's always been that way. You know, I, I've heard the statistic, I don't know where I heard it, but 90% of the stories that you and I have are going to be forgotten by our kids. And that's a sobering statistic is to think that all these things that, you know, we used to tell our kids that they're going to forget. My uh, wife's grandfather lived in a house in Carthage, Missouri, kind of near the Ozarks, and they built this old brick ranch house. And, you know, he was a life insurance guy, and he won a lot of awards, traveled around the country, great guy, you know, uh, the kind of guy that get up every morning, go to the local coffee shop, and have coffee and maybe an egg McMuffin with his fellow life insurance guys, and they'd, you know, play thumbs up to see who would pay for coffee but they had all these travels and they had photos and the little slides you know that you put into the slide reader so you could do slideshows and they had countless pictures and photos and all this kind of stuff and when he passed away ultimately we had to clean out his house and there were all these photos that we threw away and we threw them away because we didn't know who was in them. We'd forgotten the stories. We didn't know. They held no meaning for us. And so that's that idea, man. Your children are these living messages to generations we'll never see. How much better if my wife's grandfather would said, let me tell you some of these stories. I don't know my wife's grandfather's critical stories. I don't know his moments of joy. I don't know his moments of pain. We tell people that, man, you need to tell the 10 stories. What are the 10 stories that matter most to you? And tell those stories. Think about how many stories of guys who've come back from World War II that never told those stories and their kids just don't know. But when we begin to tell those stories, man, that's when we've got something that allows us to carry on. One one other story, by the way, that I didn't talk about um, but is worth telling, and it's in Second Kings chapter 10, and it's a story of a guy named Jonadab, son of Rechab. And he is, in the Old Testament, of course, he is living in a period of time where Israel is not doing well. Ahab had been king, and it was a bad time where Israel has fallen away from God. And God, as he does, appoints a deliverer, a guy named King Jehu. And King Jehu comes along, and he gets anointed by the prophet, and he's told to go wipe out the 70 sons of Ahab and get rid of the prophets of Baal. But as he's driving his chariot along, he looks down and he sees Jonadab, son of Rechab, and he says, hey, are you with me? And Jonadab, son of Rechab, says, I'm with you. And so off they go and they accomplish the mission, and that's it. That's all you ever hear of Jonadab, son of Rechab. And you think, hey, what's that story about? But if you read the Bible as one story, if you fast forward and you flip ahead into the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 35, also a bad time in the history of Israel. Israel is falling away and Babylon's going to come and take and wipe them out. And God says to Jeremiah, bring before me the Rechabites and set before them wine to drink. And so Jeremiah chapter 35, that's what happens. 
But when the Rechabites come in and sit down, they look and they say, hey, we don't drink wine and we don't live in houses. We live in tents. We don't plant gardens. We're nomads. We're warriors, I'm paraphrasing. But the bottom line is they say, we don't do this because our forefather, Jonadab, son of Rechab, said don't do this. 2 Kings chapter 10 to Jeremiah chapter 35 is 250 years of one family still pursuing the same code of conduct. And if you fast forward into the book of Nehemiah, there are Rechabites who are rebuilding the wall 400 years of one family's legacy. In Jeremiah chapter 35, it says that the Rechabites would never lack a man to stand before God. The commentators say that as late as 1864, there were still Rechabites, 60,000 Rechabites who are still following the pure Mosaic law. So that's one of the powerful things. If you think, man, we as a family, we can be successful for generations not just two, three, four, but hundreds of generations. That's a powerful way to impact our world. And you've been listening to Bill High's story. To learn more about Bill and his foundation's generosity, go to thesignatory.com, T-H-E-S-I-N-A-T-R-Y.com. Bill High's story here on Our American Stories. And we continue here with Our American Stories, and we love to hear your stories. You're the hour in Our American Stories. And send your stories to ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org. There's some of our very favorites. And now, a story from a listener named Mark Levy, who hears the show on the great KOA in Denver. And today, this father pays tribute to his son. My 35-year-old son is a quiet hero. As a teenager, he began to exhibit a variety of strange physical ailments. He got skinny and occasionally fell after losing his balance. He often felt exhausted and sometimes vomited. This went on for two or three years while he saw neurologists and other specialists until a simple overlooked blood test revealed Graves' disease which is an autoimmune disease that results in an overactive thyroid gland. After a few years of partially successful attempts to control the disease with drugs, he had his thyroid removed. After many years, his thyroid hormone levels, now mostly provided by an oral drug, stabilized. One of the symptoms of Graves' disease is anxiety and depression. One day, 19 years ago, before his thyroid levels were under control, I found a note he had written to no one explaining his unfathomable sadness and realized he was on the verge of suicide. I'd informed him a few weeks earlier that a friend of his at high school 
had killed herself, and I knew the idea of suicide spreads among teenagers like a virus. He spent a week in a pediatric psych ward at the hospital and began a regimen of antidepressants and therapy that helped pull him out of the darkness over a period of a couple of years. There was the day I sat with him in the hospital and explained to him how much pain his death would cause to so many people who loved him. It's hard to describe what it's like to have your son want to end his own life. I can tell you it's a whole lot better than having your son actually end his own life, but it takes a toll on the whole family. Of course, I'm so grateful that Eitan recovered. He went to Sarah Lawrence College because they focus on writing as a method of learning. He was a sort of normal kid there for a while, but he was always searching for ways to make his life meaningful after having considered ending his own life. Professor suggested he consider his own religious heritage, and Eitan took a trip to Israel and fell in love with the place. They had something he was looking for. Israelis live every day building their ancestral homeland and creating a unique country with a unique culture. For religious Israelis, they build this future while meeting religious obligations in the place their history and theology tells them it should be done. And they do it under constant threat of destruction from people who see the entire enterprise very differently. All of that created a tremendous pull on my boy with his renewed love of life, and he spent a year at Hebrew University and then became an Israeli citizen. Lots of religious American Jewish kids move to Israel for a while, but not so many stay. Moving to a new country is not so easy. The language and the culture is different and hard to master. Most of the American Jewish kids who go to Israel come from Orthodox homes and have a path to a yeshiva that fits them, or they go to an Israeli Defense Force unit for a crash course in Israeli culture and to defend the state. Eitan had neither a clear path to a yeshiva or to the army. He grew up in a home, mine, that only started observing the laws of the Jewish Sabbath, Shabbat, years after he left for Israel. He did have some Jewish education, but not a clear path to a life in Israel. So he found his path and eventually attended Sulam Yaakov in Jerusalem, where he received ordination as an Orthodox rabbi. You might think that set his career path, but there are a lot of rabbis in Israel. It's not really a job for too many people. At the same time, he got his tour guide license, which requires two years of training in Israel. When he first got to Israel, he tried to enter the army, but his physical health made that not an option for him. He married a wonderful young woman, and he had three sons in quick succession. So you might think this would be the end of the happy story of a young man's transition to a new life in a new country. But apparently God decided nothing was to be easy for Eitan. 
Without dwelling too much on tales of woe, Eitan faced an ongoing set of difficult challenges over the last 10 years. His fluctuating thyroid hormone levels returned from the tiny bits of thyroid tissue left behind from his surgery, causing some of the old symptoms to return. The severe excess thyroid levels from his teenage years had caused damage to the tiny muscles in his eyes, and the effects of the damage got worse over time, resulting in an inability to read normal-sized print. So, in a world where work meant either staring at a computer all day, which Eitan cannot do, or doing significant physical work all day, which his health does not allow, Eitan found himself effectively unemployable, except for his ability to work in the highly competitive tour guide business and with a family of five to support. It gets worse. Eitan also has daily chronic headaches, and periodic debilitating migraines that last from days to weeks. Effective treatment for these problems has been slow to emerge and only partially effective. His oldest son was born with rare cataracts in both eyes, requiring multiple surgeries and special schools to manage. His second son has celiac, the stomach problem that makes eating gluten seriously damaging, and learning disabilities. And his wife has a genetic anemia that contributed to her being overwhelmed with three toddlers and requiring more hands-on care duties than would otherwise be necessary from Aton. So here you have a young immigrant with multiple illnesses, a needy family, a need to support them financially and emotionally, and the only earning capacity is a tour guide limited by his special need to be close to home and in reach of his struggling family. His response has been to face each day with courage and faith in God, faith that these challenges are meant to test his inner strength. Eitan has been a tower of strength and stability for his wife and children in the midst of his own pain. He has slowly improved his health with agonizing trips through the labyrinth of the Israeli health system that treats standard problems much better than mysterious autoimmune diseases and invisible headaches. He slowly built a tour guiding practice focusing on small groups that allow him to be away from home no more than a few nights at a time. He's created a set of technology tools including large print computer and phone screens, and text-to-audio apps that allow him to function professionally in this high-tech world without being able to read normal-sized print or even read large print without triggering more severe headaches. It's been painful to watch all of this as his father. Fathers want to be able to solve and fix problems faced by their children, and it's painful to be unable to do much in the face of so many challenges. It's a universal issue to have to watch your children struggle, and it's never easy. But Aton has also been an inspiration to me. When he's not flat in bed with a migraine, he's being a great husband and father, and he's running his growing business where his clients give glowing reviews 
for his kindness more than knowledge. He revels in being part of the rebuilding of Israel as the home of the Jewish people and making Israel the home for his sons. When there were times when he was in despair and angry at himself, I would remind him of how much he's accomplished with all his health challenges. I would tell him he moved to a new country and became a rabbi and found a way to earn a living despite terrible odds and got married and became a tremendous father and husband, all with debilitating pain that would have caused most men to quit. To me, he's just heroic. He's been shaped by many things, and I like to think the virtues of perseverance and self-reliance have merged with his personal faith to create a unique American-Israeli hero. What a remarkable story. And again, we thank Mark Levy, and he's a listener at KOA in Denver, telling the story of his son, Eitan, and he is a hero. And my goodness, it is true that we parents have to watch, in the end, our kids go through pain. And there's nothing we can do about it, more often than not, except hopefully have trained them to be able to endure it, overcome it, and persevere. And the story of this young man's faith being the rock upon which he perseveres. Well, it's so many of the stories we tell here on this great show. Mark Levy's story, his son Anton's story, here on Our American Stories.